Hello and welcome to Clean Tech and Sustainability. This is part two of a podcast from Standard Chartered about the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm your host, Chloe Tilly, and in this second episode, we're looking at how to execute and monetize the opportunity presented by the IRA. Welcome back to Ted Sheen, head of Clean Tech Americas at Standard Chartered. Hi, Ted. Hi, Chloe. Great to be back. And David Burton, a partner at the global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Hi, David. Hello, Chloe. Great to be here. Great to have both of you back with us. Now, Ted, in our previous podcast, we discussed the purpose of the IRA and, of course, the opportunity it presents for communities to benefit from the growth of a clean energy economy. So can you explain how is the allowance of credits provided in the Act applied to the private sector? Really focusing on the tax credits generated predominantly by renewable projects is under the scope of the IRA and probably the most likely tax credits that our audience will see. But there's both investment tax credits and production tax credits. Once these investment tax credits and production tax credits are created, they can now be sold. So we are seeing companies, Fortune 500 and other large corporates enter into forward sales agreements or other type of arrangements with the producers of these tax credits. You know, the projects are producing these tax credits to actually enter into forward sales of these tax credits. So to be clear that the cash to be exchanged will be done at a future date once the tax credits are generated, but there is a a contract being signed before the tax credits are generated by which corporations can buy discounted tax credits. So as David had mentioned, mid 80 cents to mid 90 cents on the dollar and save that amount, you know, implied five cents to 15 cents on the dollar on their tax liabilities. Now, nearly three quarters of the IRA's clean energy investment is delivered by tax incentives. Let's look at how the scheme of IRA tax classifications apply to business. Um, David, firstly, in relation to renewables like solar and wind and investment tax credit versus production tax credit. Sure. So the investment tax credit is currently $27.50 a megawatt hour for 10 years. It's adjusted for inflation annually. The amount will increase over time, and it's for a 10-year period. But it's very easy to determine because you just look at the meter, figure out how many megawatt hours are shown on the meter, and multiply by $27.50. The investment tax credit is a little more complicated to calculate. It's based on cost or tax basis, and usually developers don't want a tax credit just based on what it cost them out of pocket to build the project, but rather they'd like a tax credit based on the fair market value of the project after it's built. So what they do is they structure a sale of the project right before it's complete for its fair market value. So that takes it, for instance, from a cost of 80 to a fair market value of 100. And then the investment tax credit is uh, typically 30%. And then that gets you a tax credit of 30 rather than 24 Uh, There are also adders uh, or extra credits, bonus credits that you can qualify for. One is for being in an energy community, and there are multiple ways to qualify your area as an energy community, one of which is being the same census tract in which there is a closed coal mine or closed coal-fired power plant, another one of which is to be in a statistical area as determined by the Department of Labor in which there has been Uh, significant fossil fuel employment, which is defined as 0.17% of total employment in the statistical area. And the statistical area has greater or at least not less unemployment than the country as a whole. Uh, So they don't want to give this this adder if everybody's got jobs and it's going great. 
But if it has fossil fuel employment historically, then it has at least uh, the same unemployment as the nation as all of you do qualify as the adder. There's also qualification if you build on a brownfield site. So if it's an environmental uh, site where there's been you know waste deposited or such, and you're going to put a real energy project, you can also qualify for an adder for that. For projects under five megawatts, there are adders to qualify called the environmental justice adder, where you can be between either 10 or 20% that you get for either building in a low-income community or supporting low-income households with the project, sharing some of the benefits of low-income households. That adder you have to apply to the Department of Energy for, and it's awarded on a competitive basis, and we're expecting to see oversubscription for that. So we're expecting to see more projects apply than the Department of Energy has capacity to award, and then the Department of Energy will rank them and prioritize them Part of energy actually makes a recommendation to the IRS, and the IRS actually makes the award, but the IRS has delegated the application and evaluation process to the Department of Energy. And so how do the IRA tax credits relate to energy storage, to green hydrogen, and also to carbon capture? So energy storage now on a standalone basis qualifies for an investment tax credit. It does not qualify for a production tax credit because storage does not create any incremental generation just allows you to dispatch to the grid at an optimal time. So it qualifies for investment tax credit on a standalone basis. Before the IRA, you had to combine it and have the project charged by a clean energy project. Now you can charge from the grid, you can charge from a coal plant, you can charge whatever you want, and the storage project qualifies. Um, there's also credits for, uh, for hydrogen, which we're still waiting for guidance on because of some disagreements within the government as to which policy to pursue. And there's also credits for carbon capture, which people are starting to transact with. I'm working on several projects involving carbon capture, whereby you get a credit for 12 years based on how much carbon you capture, meaning that you either put it into the ground, use it for enhanced oil recovery, or put it into another product, uh, whereby it's permanently captured and retained within that product. So what are the registration filing requirements to access the clean energy tax credits that the Act is offering? Yeah, we're waiting for the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, to launch its website for registration. They have said that it's on track and that it'll be launched by the end of the year. And then once it's available, the seller will have to register the sale, register a project that's selling the credits. The IRS will then issue a registration number. The registration number will be included on the seller's tax return and the buyer's tax return. And then once they actually transact, they'll have to go back on the website and say, yes, we've transacted under this registration number. Uh, so it's a technique to try to limit duplication and fraud and abuse. And I participated in a valuation of the website and it looks like the government's being pretty thoughtful about it and trying to make it uh, user-friendly and streamlined. And we hope to see it soon. Ted, let's have a look at the economics of an investment. When is the right time to purchase tax credits? Sure. Thanks, Chloe. I'll answer this in two different ways. So one is relative to other potential corporate buyers out there. We're seeing there's a lot of interest from a lot of corporate buyers for these new transferable tax credits. But over time, we expect to be a lot more buyers out there. So we expect that the returns will reduce over time. Hopefully, from the developer's perspective, that is a, a favorable outcome. But I would say to potential corporate buyers, the earlier you can get in, probably the better returns that you'll see just because you're an early adopter, just like when you see with any other emerging asset class. And the second way I would kind of frame it for potential corporate buyers is from a project development cycle 
And for the, those not in the industry, there's kind of really three major type of milestones in a project. There's a notice to proceed with construction. So you're giving the project owners giving notice to the EPC or the contractor to construct the project. There's construction and then there's COD, commercial operation date. For a potential corporate buyer, you'd like to see advanced pre-NTP or something that's pretty close to notice to proceed, I would say, for those buyers that are new to the market. Because you'd like to see a project that, say, has things like site control as an off-taker contract if it's a renewable project, the interconnection agreements for a renewal project, things like the EPC arrangements, which EPC or which contractor you're using to construct the project, and also take a quick look at the proven technology. So there are some projects that are have solar and wind, which are really well known. There's other more emerging asset classes like hydrogen, which are not as well vetted in the marketplace. So those are all risk factors calculating to how you think about risk adjusted returns. And of course, the more risk that you have, you'd expect higher returns. But probably for new corporate buyers, something that's a bit more de-risk with a reputable developer, as David had mentioned, there's still going to be indemnities required most likely with a lot of these tax credit sales that those are probably more comfortable for the new corporate buyer of these tax credits. David, the Axe tools to access clean energy tax credits are, of course, a catalyst for meeting the US government's economic and climate goals. The Act has created two new credit delivery mechanisms, direct pay and transferability. Can you just explain how these work? Sure. So transferability is what we've been discussing, and it's the sale of the credits and the Basic instrument is be a bill of sale, but a little more complicated than what you'd use to buy an automobile because you have to have the indemnities and representations and covenants and that we've been talking about. So that's really buying credits for cash. Direct pay is applying to the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, for a hundred cents on a dollar for your tax credits. So you say to the IRS, I don't have the tax liability or the tax appetite to use these tax credits. I'm going to relinquish them. In exchange, you're going to give me dollar for dollar what the tax credits are worth. Direct pay is obviously a little bit preferable if you qualify for it because you get you know 100 cents of a dollar while with uh, transferability, the buyer wants a profit. So you're getting less than 100 cents of a dollar. But only a few credits qualify for direct pay in the hands of taxpayers. So carbon capture qualifies hydrogen tax credits qualify, and the 45X manufacturing tax credit qualifies. But the wind and solar and renewable natural gas, those don't qualify if you're a taxpayer. Now, if you are a municipal government, a school district, uh, a university endowment, a hospital, a state government, an Indian tribe, those all qualified for direct pay. uh, And they can go to the IRS and say, you know, we've built this solar project on our school building, please give us a tax credit. That does happen, but it's not quite as usual as for-profit businesses uh, being involved in this. Ted? Yes, I I would say that David's absolutely correct. I think from a new corporate buyer perspective, if you're considering tax credits, you're probably most likely going to see renewable transferable tax credits just because, as David said, some of the direct pay features that apply to the other sort of sub-verticals of clean tech, including manufacturing and hydrogen and CCUS, but that's probably what you're going to most likely see if you're looking as a new corporate buyer. And we are seeing differences in pricing. So we've talked about how the quality of the indemnity influences the price. For instance, if you were going to buy production tax credits up front, you're going to say, okay, this project's going to generate tax credits through 2033. 
I will commit to buy all those tax credits. You know, now I can't pay for them now. The rules only let you pay for them no sooner than the year of a credit accrues, but you could commit to buy them. You could probably get a better price than if you say, okay, the year is over, I'm going to go buy one year worth of tax credits and one year at a time. Uh, we also see the production tax credit attract a higher, a slightly higher price by a few pennies than the investment tax credit because the production tax credit, again, is based on production. There's no risk of having to pay it back. The investment tax credit is subject to a rule called recapture, whereby if the project is uh, destroyed by a storm or a fire, or if it's transferred in the first five years, you have to pay back a sliding portion of the tax credit you claimed. So due to that theoretical risk, buyers generally want to pay a little less for the investment tax credit than they do for the production tax credit because they have an additional risk. But it's, it's not much of a discount. It's a few pennies, but it is something we are seeing. David, what tax incentives can businesses take advantage of by transferring some of their tax energy credits if they don't have sufficient tax liability to fully utilise the credit themselves? Well, really, it's a way of generating cash, right? So it's trading tax credits for cash. So if you don't have the ability to use it, you've got these tax credits that are in theory valuable, but no current cash value to you. And you can go and sell them to you know a big insurance company that can use them and they'll give you cash. And then you have cash to pay off your debt or invest in a new project or expand your business. Uh, so it's, it's really a way to raise cash. And Ted, from an ROI perspective, what are the expectations and indeed the risks of the grants in the Act? Yes. Yeah, so on the return side, as Dave and I have been alluding to, we're seeing kind of pricing in that mid 80 cents to 95 cents on a dollar. So just as a $100 million in tax credit example, you know, a potential buyer could be paying 85 million to 95 million dollars of their tax credits and have say a five to 15 million dollar in savings on their tax filings and their tax payments. That's kind of the overall return profile for the tax credits that we're seeing on market. As Dave mentioned, it's a moving target as we see it's a supply and demand market depends on a lot of different kind of risk factors, which uh, as you had asked as a second part of your question, so in terms of big risks that we see, you know, to consider from a corporate buyer perspective, certainly the track record reputation, developer and project owner is going to be important. You want to be working with a reliable, if all things being equal, you rather work with a very reputable, very experienced developer that knows how to get projects in the ground, especially as David mentioned, especially from an ITC perspective, there is a potential recapture and that liability falls on the seller. So you might ask for a corporate indemnity there's also things like tax credit insurance that might be available as well if you want to consider that to kind of de-risk that specific dimension or factor. The also other factor in terms of risk is, especially if you're buying a long-dated production tax credit, you have to understand what your own tax appetite is. If you don't have the tax appetite and then you won't be able to use the tax credits is say that in year 10, you actually also have a net operating loss. You could be foregoing the economic benefit of that tax rate you purchased 10 years ago. So that's why that pricing differential happens, especially when you look at it from a net present value calculation. That's why the longer data you go, the most likely you're going to get a, a higher discount on the price of the tax credit that you purchase. David? There's one thing on the liability for recapture. So Ted said the liability falls on the seller. That's true as a contractual matter. So let's just take an example here. You have a solar project and you're selling the tax credits to an insurance company. It's the investment tax credit. Solar project is then destroyed by a storm, wiped out, doesn't exist anymore. 
the insurance company that bought the investment tax credit has to pay it back on a five-year sliding scale to the Internal Revenue Service, um, but it would likely have an indemnity from the seller. So it would say, okay, I now owe the IRS a big payment. I will make that payment, but seller, you are going to make me whole for that because I was not taking the risk that this project got hit by a storm because I'm just passive and not all that involved in the project. Uh, so that that's how the recapture liability gets allocated between the parties. And Ted, did you want to make a final point? Yes, the final point was really regarding technology risk, as we have a spectrum of technologies that are eligible for the tax credit. So solar, wind, and energy storage, I think, are well understood by the marketplace. A lot of operating hours and pretty well-vetted technology risk that can be vetted by independent engineers and other experts. When we have some of the more emerging asset classes, such as clean hydrogen, carbon capture, there's a bit more technical due diligence that's involved and a bit more expertise. So you could also expect those to be perhaps get also higher discounts in the market. This is still evolving. So we'll have to see how the pricing comes out. But technology risk and project risk are certainly factors considered when you're at what price that you're going to pay for these tax credits. David, are there any other tax implications or due diligence considerations relating to the act that need to be considered? Yes, there are. First of all, the payment to the seller is tax-free. So that that's nice. It's always nice to get cash and not have to pay tax. The profit to the buyer is also tax-free from a federal income tax perspective. So uh, let's say I pay 90 cents of a dollar, I have 10 cents of profit. I don't have to pay tax on that 10 cents of profit. Although uh, there are rumblings that some states may try to tax that 10 cents of profit, but that still needs to be worked out, but it is something to think about. And then due diligence, you if you're being told it's a $100 million tax credit, you want to make sure it's not a five kilowatt project, which could possibly generate a $100 million tax credit. So you want to make sure that the tax credit's been properly sized, whether it's the PTC production tax credit or the ITC investment tax credit. You know, you want to make sure that it's unlikely to have problems whereby the project would have to shut down. You want to make sure it's well constructed, that the construction company uh, is reputable, that it's using um, appropriately proven technology, or that you're getting maybe compensated for uh, investing in the project using innovative technology. You want to make sure that the seller actually has the ability to satisfy your indemnity if your indemnity is coming from an empty a uh, limited liability company with no assets. It's not worth very much. So you want to make sure that you know, your indemnity is properly written, but also that the party giving it to you actually has the wherewithal to satisfy it if necessary. But there's many diligence issues and uh, you really need to work with financial and legal and accounting advisors who can help guide you through that. Finally, Ted, I mean, it's still early days, isn't it, for the Inflation Reduction Act, but what impact have these subsidies had so far in attracting investment in the US? So yeah, overall, it's been very, very robust. We've seen hundreds of billions of dollars in announcements and over hundreds of projects post IRA. And so it's really accelerated a lot of the project completions. As I alluded before in the previous podcast, we're seeing a lot of cross-border interest in investing in the manufacturing base and in renewable projects and other clean tech projects in the U.S., so we really think it's quite the game changer in terms of the relative attractiveness of the U.S. as an investment destination for clean tech infrastructure and other assets. So, you know, we had alluded to this $370 billion number in terms of the tax incentives that were provided by the IRA. As David mentioned, this is not capped, so it could be potentially much greater than that. 
And if you add in the multiplier effect, we really expect trillions of dollars over the upcoming decades through the IRAs, subsidies, and other incentives. You know, it formally expires in 2032, but as, as David said, there's a sunset to this. Whereas if you create a project in 2032, you still have 10 years potentially of additional tax credits because you, you have 10 years of production tax credits for the specific project. So very, very significant legislation, and we expect a lot of activity in this important sector in the years and decades ahead. Well, thank you both so much for giving us such a helpful and knowledgeable insight into this issue. Ted and David, really appreciate your time. Now, if you'd like any further information about the IRA and its tax credit opportunities, you can email theodore.sheen at sc.com. But from me, Chloe Tilly, Ted Sheen and David Burton, thanks for listening and goodbye.